Poachers get emboldened when policymakers and the public stop emphasizing regulation and enforcement. This is Defender Radio. Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers. It's season six. It's hard to believe that this is the sixth year of the podcast, but the proof is in the pudding. Hundreds of episodes, thousands of downloads every month, and a great following on social media all show that you have made the show a success. So from myself and everyone at the Fur Bears, thank you. Now, I told you in the news brief that was released earlier this week that I'd catch you up. So, here goes. Over summer, I had a significant life change put upon me. But JJ and I are happy, healthy, and almost back home in Hamilton. My friends, family, and listeners like you have been a huge part of why I'm moving forward, staying healthy and positive. And I will never be able to express how much I appreciate that. Now, on to the show. Those in consumptive wildlife activities, such as hunting and trapping, like to say that they're responsible for the conservation of many species. And, in some ways, they are. But there's an important difference between the concept of hunting to conserve and regulating hunting to conserve. And that's the subject of a paper by Dr. Adrian Travis, along with Drs. Kyle Artell and Paul Paquette. Differentiating Between Regulation and Hunting as Conservation Interventions, published in the August 2018 edition of Conservation Biology, takes on the difference a word can make in conversation and policy. Dr. Travis joined the show to tell us more about this paper, why that single word matters, and what this paper and the discussion surrounding it could do for conservation moving forward. What was the impetus for doing this study. I mean, it's a subject that is very, very, I'd say important, but surprisingly isn't actually written about that much. Yeah, so agreed. It's very timely. That's what prompted us to write it, sort of to write it now, write it finally. Um, As one of the reviewers pointed out, uh, many of us roll our eyes or chafe at the assertions that are made in the conservation science literature and public presentations about hunting as a conservation intervention. So we've been rolling our eyes and chafing for a long time. And therefore the question sort of is why now? And it's very timely, it's urgent with things like grizzly bears being proposed for hunting in uh, the northern Rocky Mountains of the USA, and frequent calls for the hunting of wolves in the lower 48. Uh, But it also happens in other parts of the world, and and that's why a journal like Conservation Biology with an international readership and a high impact factor would pick up our diversity opinion. That's the name of the article. And I I guess... Uh, let's dive into the history because that's where this stems from. Uh, And this is something I've spoken with you about in the past. And I've heard a couple of other uh, uh, researchers like yourself kind of dive into the subject of actual history versus the romanticized history. If we go back a couple of hundred years, what we are told, I would say uh, in a a vast generalization, because I know in science, we like to use those, 
um, is that hunters saved species through conservation. It's just very simply put, if it wasn't for us, there wouldn't be these animals now. And it is a, a, something of a paradox that is very difficult to approach. And that let's just start with, with the history. Was that true? Was that accurate? That without hunters, a lot of these animals, a lot of these ecosystems may not exist now. Yeah, I mean, you're right that we have to go back to the history. So in the US, and, and remember that a lot of this is paralleled in Canada, and I can't speak to the history there. I haven't read as much. But in the US, after about 1865, after our Civil War, and through into the early 1900s, there was a uh, extensive commercial market for wildlife meat. Uh, one sees photos of it, one sees written descriptions of the hundreds of thousands of animals being harvested every year and brought to market for sale, okay? Uh, it was unsustainable, it was over-exploitation, it was um, basically depleting the landscape for personal profit of a few commercial hunters. And quite rightly, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there were campaigns against this, notably going all the way up to the White House, where President Teddy Roosevelt wrote eloquently about the evils of this sort of over-hunting, over-exploitation, and the commercial commercialization of wildlife, which, as you know, are a public trust asset. I've spoken about it before on your program. Mm -hmm. So at the highest levels of U.S. government, there was hand-wringing and concern over the near extinction of species such as the Canada goose, lots of waterfowl, elk, white-tailed deer, and many of our large predators were extirpated around that time or soon after. So the response of authorities and of a private movement as well was to regulate hunting. It was to reduce it, to stop the commercialization, to create systems of permitting, allowable methods of hunting, seasons, and individual bag limits, right? The limits placed on individual hunters for how many waterfowl they could take or how many deer they could take. Those are all regulations. And also enforcement was put into place. Uh, that means game wardens, people to stop poaching, people to check permits, check bag limits, etc. So those regulations and enforcement, I think uh, there's good evidence. Those regulations and enforcement are rightly seen as the intervention that helped prevent extinction of so many of these species that are now numerous and common and emblematic of our landscapes. Interestingly, a shorthand came about, and you just referred to it, the phrase you used is a shorthand I've heard too. Another shorthand one hears is hunting saved those species from extinction. Mm -hmm. In the late 70s and 80s, 1970s and 1980s, an idea came to be bandied about called the North American model, which is sort of a mantra. It's a mantra for how regulated hunting helped conserve species. The, the ones I mentioned, and how hunters were important in that conservation of over 100 years ago. The shorthand term, though, has crept in. 
and the word regulated has dropped out of the rhetoric and acknowledgement of the enforcement that's needed to prevent overhunting has dropped out of the rhetoric. So now we see this sort of mutation, this shorthand term that hunters saved these wild animal populations and hunting saved these wild animal populations. So the article that came out today in Conservation Biology with my colleagues, Dr. Paul Paquette, Dr. Kyle Artel, who are Canadians and have deep connections to the USA as well, we just decided, you know, enough is enough. Uh, let's put the word regulated back in there and let's be super clear that good conservation science requires evidence about which component of the conservation intervention was actually effective. We certainly show our colors, we're being transparent. We think it's the regulation that made this conservation intervention 100 years ago effective in preventing extinction. But we're open, we're transparent about it, we're open to the alternative that there's something else about regulated hunting that explains its effectiveness in preventing extinction. But our colleagues have to be explicit about it. No more of this sloppy statement that hunting prevented extinction, because logically, hunting never saved any animal from extinction. Mm -hmm. well, it, it never directly saves anything. And that's, it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, and I think social media is partly to blame for this. Because there are people I will speak to, and I try and be very open about my viewpoints, and I'm very curious to hear other people's viewpoints, even if they don't align with mine, uh, because I think that's how we learn and grow. Uh, but it it has become, and I think the word you used is a mantra, it is, well, this is the way it is. And there is a wonderful line in the article that states very simply, uh, to our knowledge, there is no evidence that hunting has ever saved an animal population or species from extinction. And again, I think it's very, very important to state or to underscore the word evidence because yeah. there's lots of anecdotal conversation. Oh, well, I paid money into this association and that association then turned and created this habitat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to show it. You have to show your work uh, if you want evidence to be accepted as such. Um, yeah. Also, what you're calling attention to is well documented that hunters and their organizations contributed millions of dollars. Oh, yeah, definitely. To those sorts of activities. Those are all indirect actions, indirect contributions to preventing extinction. And one shouldn't underestimate those. But there are dozens of indirect actions that have contributed to preventing extinction, such as change in society's attitudes and norms towards how we treat wildlife and nature, changes in land use and agricultural practices, right? All of those have indirect effects. Mm -hmm. But the claim that hunters are hunting prevented extinction, saved wildlife, those are claims about direct conservation action. And, and when you look at straight in the eye, the only direct conservation intervention was regulating hunting. It was regulating the over-exploitation and enforcing laws against commercialization and against poaching. Those are the direct interventions. 
And so we are holding our colleagues to task. And that includes scientists like ourselves in universities and in non-governmental organizations, but it also includes those wildlife managers, biologists working in, in government agencies, whether it's state, provincial, tribal, federal, what have you. I want to talk about the importance of this because it, it can on the surface seem trivial, um, particularly when you sort of you, you boil it down to saying we just want regulated to be in that sentence, uh, as you said, about regulated hunting um, and with the focus on regulation. Why is it important that uh, let's start with the general public and we'll get to policy. Uh, why is it important the general public and researchers uh, and hunters themselves recognize the difference between these two things? Yeah, great question. Thanks. So when one drops the word regulation, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, it tends to reduce the importance and investment in law enforcement, which means poachers get uh, emboldened. They may sense that there is no regulation or enforcement. And throughout across the U.S., we've seen a resurgence of poaching especially for uh, threatened and endangered species, especially for our large predators. And poaching is the major cause of mortality. It is the most severe cause of mortality for wolves across the U.S., if you want to take one example. So poachers and other environmental crimes, uh, they get emboldened. Environmental criminals, I guess, would be their term, get emboldened when policymakers and the public stop emphasizing regulation and enforcement. And for those who intentionally drop it, that's a political statement. That's an ideology that we don't need regulation. Well, conservation scientists shouldn't be endorsing that idea until it's been tested. So we call for a test by scientists who are conscientious about asking what makes a conservation intervention effective. Another consequence of dropping regulation the idea of regulation and enforcement from our narratives about hunting, a consequence for the public is that um, all other sorts of regulation and enforcement of environmental protections uh, can fall by the wayside in the same manner. So even if you don't care about wildlife, but you care about clean water, clean air, soil erosion, all those things require regulation and enforcement by the watchdogs of democracy that includes our government so we can't afford to stop discussing regulation and enforcement it's essential when we translate that over to the policy conversation which i i consider to be a little different um and again not speaking publicly but in the actual room of sitting down and developing well this is what we're going to do here and there uh, and writing the guidelines and printing them and, you know, explaining them to advocacy groups and to on both sides, uh, to law enforcement, et cetera. What role does that simple change make? Well, I would expect policymakers who stare this squarely and are open minded will realize that they need to invest uh Basically, they need to invest government resources, taxpayer uh, resources into enforcement, and they can't uh, take away the regulations without a loss of public interest, public trust assets. And I think when we frame this as a question of 
the public is losing every time unregulated wildlife killing happens. When we frame it that way, you can see the public policy debate has to squarely look at the question of whether our unregulated and voluntary compliance is working or not. Here's two examples. I've cited one already. Poaching is the most uh, severe cause of mortality for our threatened and endangered wolves in the U.S. That's a crying shame because poaching is a preventable crime. Mm -hmm. Secondly, take a look at the spread of wildlife killing campaigns across the U.S. or contests. These contests are uh, illegitimate, unethical, and, and not supported by science. They are free-for-alls where contestants are encouraged to kill as many animals as they can. The largest uh, coyote kill gets a prize, the, the hunter gets a prize, the hunter who kills the most gets prizes. These are directly antithetical to the North American model of hunting, to our ideas about conservation interventions, and to the principles Teddy Roosevelt wrote about 100 years ago. These wildlife killing contests are spurred on by a lack of regulation, a lack of enforcement, and a lack of oversight. So I believe our policymakers and our public have to look squarely at this question and ask, is this how we want future generations to remember our stewardship of nature? I think that's a very good way of putting it. and. I also think it's important that uh, in some of the discussion, um, talking about this meaning, I'm sorry, I'm going to try and rephrase this so it makes more sense, um, confusing the difference between scientific evaluation of the effectiveness of hunting and um, the regulation of hunting for the population with opposition to hunting. This is something that's, I feel, and again, I think social media is, is largely to blame for a lot of this these days, that we can challenge the practice because of its policy without actually challenging the practice. It's, it's like one of those weird, we can be opposed to the war, but not to the troop situations. Um, how do we talk about that so that we can be clear? Like, well, like I think it's pretty clear by my point of view, I, I would much prefer a world where hunting doesn't happen. But a world does exist where hunting happens, so let's use the best possible science. Um, how do we have that conversation in such a way that everyone on all sides kind of gets that there, this isn't an argument against hunting. It's an argument about the uh, alleged science behind the hunting. That's right. And we try to be clear about this in our article. We are not opposed to hunting. We don't see hunting for subsistence as antithetical to conservation, as, as incompatible with conservation at all. But we also expect those with an ideological axe to grind will paint us as such. So let's be super clear here. There's something about regulating hunting in the way that was done 100 years ago that prevented extinction of these wild animal populations. Let's figure out what that was and invest in it because we're facing unprecedented ecosystem collapse around the world and we need to get a handle on overexploitation. 
of our wild fish and animal populations. We need to get a handle on it for the benefit of everybody and for future generations. So let's figure out, was it actually the regulation and enforcement of rules and laws? Or was there something more subtle about the people at that time and how they took uh, an ethical, conscientious approach to their hunting? And there was a sort of a peer pressure. Because if it's the peer pressure, not the regulation and the enforcement, then we better rebuild that peer pressure because we see numerous failures today across North America, failures of the conservation that Teddy Roosevelt called for. So let's curb whatever is going wrong by figuring out what went right 100 years ago. Uh, therefore, our paper is a call for evidence, uh, not opposition to hunting. It's very interesting to me when whenever I read papers like this, whenever I read any paper really regarding uh, regulated hunting or trapping uh, and wildlife populations, sometimes the arguments and the explanations seem wildly oversimplified. And I will make up something entirely on the spot, but say you're going to hunt for bugbears and their natural prey, the, you know, the fawns uh, are at risk. So that means we need to hunt more bugbears. Uh, and I'm using Dungeons and Dragons animals, uh, which is very scientific too. Um, and I, I guess what, what ends up confusing me is how we are looking at a single relationship when we talk about regulated hunting. And, you know, I, I suppose a better example is wolves and moose. Uh, for example, is one that happens constantly here in Ontario, or even coyotes and moose sometimes. Um, and it's this back and forth, oh, well, we need to do this to manage that part of it. We need to do that to manage this part of it. But it is rarely a holistic look at the ecosystem. Uh, is that part of this conversation as well, that we need to stop just looking at individual populations and look at the ecosystem as a whole? Uh, when we talk about regulated hunting or trapping? Well, that goes beyond the topic of our paper. And, I, you know, I appreciate you bringing up uh, related topics that a lot of people in your list, in your audience, are going to pay attention to and be interested in. Um, we don't speak to that in this paper. So I'd like just to restrict my answer to something very brief. Which sure. Is, is, uh, you've alluded to. Uh, there is no good science for a one-on-one -on -one relationship between a predator and its prey. And partly that's because we live in multi-predator ecosystems here in North America. Mm -hmm. And partly it's because the major mortality factors for pre their prey tend to be food supply, climatic conditions for shelter. So predators often do not have the powerful influence on prey populations that hunters like to ascribe to them. We as hunters can have incredibly strong impacts on prey populations. And the, and the wild predators, the carnivores, get scapegoated for the crashes that we see in our prey populations often. And I guess that's that's about all I can say about that at mm -hmm. this point. Fair enough. It's it's uh, it's hard not to connect the dots sometimes. But I think that's also uh, for my side of the debates. 
uh, or my side of advocacy in trying to protect wildlife specifically um, and at times curb a lot of uh, consumptive activity that I can try and connect your statement into, well, that makes sense to me because I don't understand how this works way off to the, you can't see me. I'm actually waving off to the side right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I tend to forget that this is an audio only format and talk with my hands. Um, so it, it, it's not only what you're saying to those who say, oh, we'll just drop the regulated and say hunting did this and sort of simplify that. The same actually applies to the other side of, well, I'm seeing a connection between this kind of a statement and this kind of a policy over here, even though there may not be a, a complete uh, connection. And we really need to be aware of these tangents that as advocates uh, outside of the scientific community, we tend to go on. Uh, and it's certainly something I think that gets perpetuated by the media. Uh, so it's a very interesting insight to me that this isn't, a, while it is about regulated hunting, it's also about how we communicate in this field as a whole. Yeah, I agree. Um, most media and definitely social media uh, don't convey nuance very effectively. And I think it's actually our duty as citizens to be to be carrying the nuance when our media don't for us or our politicians don't. We need to keep in mind those nuances. And, and let me give you an example here. Um, there are definitely two or more sides to this debate. Let's just take two that are the common ones. One is rather anti-predator and the other one is rather pro-predator. We discussed this a little bit in the paper that came out today. The anti-predator side of the debate is full of advocates, but they're different than the advocates on the pro-predator side of the debate. And they're different for a very simple reason. They are self-dealing. Their arguments are self-serving. The anti-predator groups want more hunting opportunities or want to protect their livestock livelihoods. That is self-interest. The pro-predator groups that argue for protection of predators are thinking about future generations and ecosystem integrity. They are not self-dealing. Right? They're not self-interested. That is a huge difference between the two groups of advocates. And I would say most media don't address it properly. They don't understand that difference. Uh, I hope the public will start to sit up and realize that hunters are often arguing for themselves when they say hunters saved wildlife from extinction. Well, lots of forces in society saved wildlife from extinction. To wrap up, it, it, this is always an interesting question when we talk about a, a paper like this rather than an advocacy item, but people want to spread this information, I think. It's a very well-written paper. I encourage people to go read it and share it. Uh, what is the best way people can support this kind of, I'd say, both uh, analysis and writing um, uh, and it's by yourself through uh, the Carnivore Conservation Lab? at the Nelson Institute, I'm going to get it all in one go, at the, it's the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I should get points oh. for saying, oh, come on. That, that was <laughs> My lab is the carnivore coexistence lab. <laughs> oh, well, all right. 
and then, of course, Kyle and uh, Paul are both uh, UVic, University of Victoria, and uh, Rancos Conservation Foundation, who do wonderful work. Uh, so short of simply reading the paper and sharing it on social media, sharing the podcast and other write-ups about it, how can people be encouraging this kind of, I'd argue, independence and self-criticizing uh, research on wildlife and wildlife policy and management? Well, thanks for asking that, Michael, and, and uh, mentioning the institutions of my two co-authors. That's hugely important. Thank you for reminding me. Um, Listen, this is a David and Goliath battle here. Uh, we're talking about a revolution in how we think about uh, nature preservation. And for a long time, agency biologists and pro-hunting biologists have had their, their way. And the public can do a lot simply by spreading the word, sharing short articles like these with their friends and family on, on social media and whatever platform, writing op-eds. Obviously, these are all the tools of a vigorous and vibrant democracy, and we need them. And secondly, with all David and Goliath kind of struggles, we are uh, under-resourced and have little time. So any contributions are welcome. I would also encourage the hunters out there who are ecologically minded to speak to their colleagues, push the institution of hunting back to where it was in the 1920s, 1910s, when Teddy Roosevelt wrote so eloquently about the responsibility uh, that came with being a hunter. Uh, we need those hunters back again. They're out there, but they're quiet right now. When I talk about livestock owners wanting predators killed to protect their livestock, and you know that's self-serving, that's not the only reason to oppose lethal management of predators. The other more important reason probably is that lethal methods are not effective. They're not protecting livestock the way people think they are. And we have um, one huge global review that concludes that very, makes that very conclusion. I, I would love an opportunity to you know, follow up with this short article about precision about what is the conservation intervention with another interview if i could about methods for protecting livestock from predators you can check out this paper on the conservation biology website or your preferred academic portal links can also be found in the show notes on this week's episode i want to thank dr travis for joining me and all of you for tuning in Remember to follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and on Instagram at Howie Michael to find out what I'm up to, how adorable JJ is, and more. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.